Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 126, What is an Evangelical? with Kermit Zarley. Mr. Kermit Zarley was a successful professional golfer on the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour. Commenting on his unusual name, legendary comedian Bob Hope once referred to him as the pro from the moon. And so Mr. Zarley has been nicknamed the pro from the moon or the moon man. 1965, Mr. Zarley co-founded the PGA Tour Bible Study Group, which still continues today. A graduate from the University of Houston, in 2001 he received an honorary doctorate from North Park University in Chicago, which has a biannual lecture series named after him. His published books include Solving the Samaritan Riddle, The Gospels Interwoven, Palestine is Coming, The Third Day Bible Code, The Warrior from Heaven, and The Restitution of Jesus Christ. He blogs on golf, theology, the Bible, and current events at the Kermit Zarley blog on Patheos. Today I have the privilege of talking with him about a topic he recently blogged about, which is, what is an evangelical? Mr. Zarley, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. I'm very happy to be back with you, Dale. Mr. Zarley, some journalists and scholars want to define the term evangelical so they can comment on politics or the presidential primaries or societal trends. But why do evangelicals care so much about defining who is and who isn't an evangelical? Uh, That's a good question, Dale. I would say that probably it has to do with evangelicals believing strongly in the need for people to have a personal conversion experience with Jesus Christ. But evangelicals go further than that. They believe strongly in having a view of the divine inspiration of the Bible. Other than that, I don't know if I'm very good at answering the question. I've just always identified myself as an evangelical because I attend evangelical churches. Yeah. So when you define a term like Christian or evangelical, sometimes people just are asking a sociological question, you know, which, which group are you functionally a part of? Yeah. And then they're not necessarily asking about beliefs, but I too lived most of my life in the evangelical world. I w- I've gone to five different evangelical churches. I would call myself one now. I'm not sure everybody else would, but we'll get to that later. But of course, w- what we think is important as evangelical Christians is what we believe So if we want to know, is somebody an evangelical, we're not so much asking about, are they within this particular social group? We're asking if they have a particular constellation of beliefs, because that's what we think is important. I mean, I think on bad days, evangelicals sort of think that the evangelicals are the the real Christians, (laughs) you know? Yeah. But then if if you ask an evangelical, well, well, do you really think all the Catholics are going to hell or all the mainstream Protestants? Well, no, they don't really think that. Not really. Okay, but that's the really faithful Christians or the, the biblically faithful Christians or something like that. There's more precise definitions that we'll come to in a second. But I also have noticed that there's something distinctive of evangelicals as a people, which is we have a tendency to circle the wagons. 
Maybe this comes from being looked down upon in wider society. I have a world religions class and I discuss that some religions are very cool and some are uncool. You know, if a college student um, walks into a room of other college students and says, I'm a Buddhist, you know, they're going to be really impressed by that. Never mind if the person even knows what they're talking about. Say, <laughs> you know, I think I'm going to become an evangelical. <laughs> what are you, an evil Republican? You know, <laughs> At least in my part of the country, that's what they're going to react. It's a very anti-Republican and, and in a lot of ways anti-Christian and anti-evangelical. But anyway, so evangelicals, as a matter of fact, have done a lot of circling the wagon, right? As theologians, let's have an evangelical journal. Let's have evangelical conferences and evangelical institutions and... So if something's not evangelical, if it's a person or an idea, well, well we kind of dismiss that, you know, that's, let, let's stick with evangelical things here, you know, in other words, really faithful ideas or people. There was an interesting episode of this in the uh, philosophical world. In the 1970s, some very smart and respected Christian philosophy professors founded the Society of Christian Philosophers. And... It didn't have any very particular requirements to be a member, but these were basically conservative Christians. Evangelicals are nearly so. I've been a participant in the Society of Christian Philosophers since about the mid-90s when I was a grad student, and who would show up? Well, a lot of evangelicals, but then there'd be an odd Mormon or two that might show up. There'd be Catholics, liberal Christians... Sometimes even the main speaker at the conference wouldn't even be a Christian, but it would be some important philosopher that had something that, to say that Christians wanted to hear about. But anyway, the people that really kept it going, the people that really presented a lot of the papers and served as officers, I mean, a lot of those people were evangelicals or at least very traditional Christians. But it really grated on some people that, you know, a Mormon might be able to show up or be a member and so in the 90s, some evangelicals connected with Biola, my alma mater, they founded the Evangelical Philosophical Society. And to be a member of this, you have to swear on to inerrancy and the Trinity and a statement of faith that looks like a typical conservative evangelical American church. And I guess it's a pretty thriving society, but they kind of suck the life out of the Society of Christian Philosophers because they took away some of the time and energy of the people that had been its lifeblood, the evangelicals. Why do that? Why, why don't we want to hear and have arguments with Catholics and liberal Christians and mainliners? It's kind of strange. The estrangement of evangelicals in the theological world is another thing. It goes both ways. They pull themselves back, but they're also viciously excluded by non-evangelicals. But anyway, I think that's why we care so much, because evangelicals think belief is important, and there's lots of different kinds of Christians out there, and they don't all have this type of belief that we'll talk about in a minute. So I teach uh, logic and critical thinking occasionally, and philosophers generally are into definitions, and definitions can go wrong in a bunch of different ways. A definition can be too wide, it can let in too many examples that shouldn't count, so if you give an evangelical definition of evangelical that was like uh, somebody who believes in God, well, wait a second, then Catholics and maybe Muslims would count. No, that's too wide. That's laying in too much. Or a definition can be too narrow. It can exclude too much. 
And I think a good example of this would be if you defined an evangelical as somebody who believed in inerrancy, because, I mean, there are plenty of evangelicals, maybe it's not a majority, but there are plenty of them who don't quite hold that position, wouldn't you say? Oh, definitely. Some of my scholar friends, probably several, do not believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. Right. But I accept them as evangelicals. I think in most of those cases, they probably identify themselves as moderate evangelicals. Yeah, so putting that in the definition would be too much. It would, it would exclude too many. Another problem a definition can have is it can be circular. This is where you, know, you use the word that you're trying to define in the definition. So you know, an evangelical is somebody that has evangelical beliefs or something. Okay, well, that's not helpful. <laughs> uh, or... A definition might pick out the right group of people, but it might not really get to the essence or the core of what they are, what makes them evangelicals. So like if you defined a Democrat as somebody who thinks that Reagan was a lousy president, <laughs> that's going to be too wide and too narrow. There's probably some Democrats that don't think that, and there's, there's probably people that aren't Democrats who think that Reagan was a lousy president. But even if it was all and only Democrats that thought that, it's still like, that's not what being a Democrat is. It's just a surface feature. It's not part of the defining essence of being a Democrat. So, you know, if you defined evangelicals as, um, I don't know, people who think Amy Grant is an important musician, I don't know, or uh, <laughs> people that like the NIV, <laughs> something like that. It, even if it was all the right people who were selected, it still wouldn't be getting at the heart of the matter because it's going to have to have something to do with belief, not with taste in biblical translations or female recording artists or something like that. So when the Trinity's podcast returns, I'll talk to Mr. Zarley about his blog post entitled, Am I an Evangelical or Not?, Zarley, I was intrigued by your blog post. This was from January 2016. It was called, Am I an Evangelical or Not? And you're discussing some recent publication here by the National Association of Evangelicals, which is kind of an official gatekeeper, or it's kind of an official organization of evangelical Christians. And if there was going to be some organization that was going to authoritatively tell you what an evangelical was, these would be maybe the people that you would look to. There's no evangelical pope or Vatican or <laughs> anything, but since when was this? Since after World War II, this has been a organization that many evangelicals kind of consider an umbrella organization over, their, over the movement. They did some work recently, and at the end of your blog post, you said to the NAE in all caps, make up your mind, <laughs> because there was some things about their definition that would suggest that you, and indeed I, are a couple of evangelicals, and then there's something that they put in there that would suggest that we're not. How did you come to write that blog post, and how did you end up ending it in all caps? Yes, 
I started out telling about Bebbington's definition of an evangelical, which became standard fare among evangelicals. He wrote that in a book back in the 1980s. He's an English scholar. He has four, four points there. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you can tell us what those four points are. Absolutely. I've, I've got the NAE website pulled up here, and they provide what I assume is an exact quotation from him. The four points are conversionism, activism, biblicism, and crucicentrism, which are supposed to mean the following. Conversionism is the belief that lives need to be transformed through a born-again experience and a lifelong process of following Jesus. Activism they say, is the expression and demonstration of the gospel in missionary and social reform efforts. Biblicism is a high regard for and obedience to the Bible as the ultimate authority. And crucicentrism, in Bebbington's definition, is a stress on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as making possible the redemption of humanity. Yes, I fully subscribe to all four of those points of Bebbington's definition of an evangelical, and I always have. I was saved when I was 13 years old. I attended Sunday school regularly from the time I was six in the Nazarene church, partly because of an uncle who was a Nazarene preacher. And when I was 13 years old, my Sunday school teacher led me in private prayer to receive Jesus into my life. Up to that time, I had not understood salvation as presented in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, that we need to believe that Jesus died for our sins on the cross and make him Lord of our life. And I would also throw in there, believe in Jesus' resurrection. And so that's what I did with Gordy. And I believe I was born again then. I had this feeling in myself as I was walking home, you know, in my early teens, that I felt this joy in my heart. But I didn't start to grow as a Christian. And we actually moved away from that church right after that. So I didn't attend Sunday school until I went to college. And I got among athletes at my college at the University of Houston who are Christians and meeting together for prayer and Bible study. And then I got in a Bible church and got teaching. And that's where I was first taught the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three co-equal and co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, meaning that the Son is Jesus Christ. And so I had never learned that before. And so I believed it. I accepted it. I never questioned it until 20 years later. And it started with my own private Bible study when I read in Jesus' Olivet Discourse that he didn't know the time of his return. And I had known that teaching quite well. But all of a sudden, I believe a light came on inside me and I thought, that makes Jesus look like a liar because I was taught the hypostatic union, that Jesus has a divine nature and a human nature. And that when he did or said things that we read about in the New Testament gospels, that he did or said that in one of his two natures, either his divine nature or his human nature. And I was taught that when he said he didn't know the time of his return, he said that in his human nature. He really knew it in a divine nature, 
but he didn't know it in his human nature. And so I said, that makes Jesus look like a liar. He says he didn't know the time of his return, but he actually does. I said, wait just a minute. I'm going to have to look into this. And so that threw me into what I call my personal quest for the real Jesus. And I did an awful lot of study on that in the Bible and reading theological books. And so I decided, no, the New Testament does not teach that Jesus is God. Jesus never said he was God. In the book of Acts, when the disciples would preach the gospel, they never had anything in their gospel message about Jesus being God. And so, no, this is not what the Bible teaches. It does not teach that Jesus was God. He was a man, but he had a miraculous birth, conception, actually, that we call the virgin birth. And so then I also looked at, well, then who is God? And so I decided after quite some time of study that this doctrine of the Trinity, which had been formulated by church fathers in the latter fourth century and was made official by the Roman Catholic Church at its second ecumenical council called the First Council of Constantinople, that this doctrine of the Trinity is not biblical. God is not three persons. He's one person. And Jesus referred to him as the Father. So only the Father is the true and living God. And Jesus is his son, but that doesn't indicate he's God. That just refers to a special relationship with God. And so God, the Father, sent Jesus. I don't think it means that he sent him from heaven so that he preexisted his humanity. No, it means that he sent Jesus on a mission, just like God sent his previous prophets or John the Baptist, as it says in John 1, 6, that God sent Jesus to perform this ministry, to have this role as this prophet teacher, miracle worker, and sage, and so on, but ultimately to go to the cross and die for our sins. So I no longer believed that Jesus was God or in the doctrine that God is three persons. I became what is called a non-Trinitarian. Now, in this definition of Bemington and in the later definition by the National Association of Evangelicals, they both have four points. And the NAE's definition is very close to the same definition of Bebbington, and it says nothing about the doctrine of the Trinity. But on the website of the National Association of Evangelicals, where they posted about these four points as the uh, markers that of identification of an evangelical, they don't say anything about the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, they don't try to define God in that way. But right after that definition, they speak of the triune God, that all evangelicals believe in a triune God, yeah. meaning the doctrine of the Trinity. And so that's why I said at the end of that post, make up your mind. Yeah, I've got this article on their site right in front of me, and here's the paragraph that you're talking about. So right after the four points, they say, these distinctives and theological convictions define us, 
not political, social, or cultural trends. Yeah, I think that's right. They're making that point to outsiders, in a sense. They continue, In fact, many evangelicals rarely use the term evangelical to describe themselves. That's true. Some do and some don't. Um, They say, focusing simply on the core convictions of the triune God, hmm? the Bible, faith, Jesus, salvation, evangelism, and discipleship. So they snuck the triune God in there. (laughs) Yeah. That wasn't... (laughs) Why did they do that? I mean, I think they did that because they just uh, are bothered by somebody who doesn't believe in the triune God claiming that they're an evangelical. But I would push back on this point. I think it's just straightforwardly too narrow. And here's why. To put belief in the triune God into the definition of evangelical is just flat out narrow. It excludes too many. There are people who believe in the Trinity. That's one kind of Christian. Of course, there's different interpretations of it, but never mind that. There's people who affirm the Trinity, the traditional Trinitarian language. There's people like you and me who used to do that, but went through this journey and decided that we don't think that the Bible actually teaches that, and we think the Bible actually says that the one God is the Father, not the Trinity. So we are Unitarians. There are a lot of evangelicals that aren't cleanly in either one of those two camps. I mean, they're Trinitarians only in the sense that the Trinity is on the books. If you surf on over to the website of their denomination, or if you look at the statement of faith that's in their official bulletin or something, it might have something about the triune God. But if you actually talk to them, they don't talk about the Trinity. (laughs) They might say Jesus is God, but that's something different. And a lot of them just don't even know what the Trinity is. They're not anti-Trinitarian, and they're not Trinitarian, but they're just kind of in the middle. But my point is, you can definitely be an evangelical and be one of these people who's not quite sure what they think about the Trinity. And the Trinity just doesn't enter in really to their preaching. Uh, It's not a central core belief of theirs. They tend to stick more with biblical language because they're evangelicals, and there's not that kind of talk of a tripersonal God in the Bible. If they were to ask us, okay, Mr. Zarley, let me, let me be the inquisitor here for a moment, okay? Uh-huh. <laughs> you, you say you're this evangelical, and you say that you're not a Trinitarian anymore. All right, which of these four points did you give up on? Did you give up on conversionism, activism, biblicism, or crucicentrism? Yeah, I didn't give up on any of those, as I said. I believe very strongly in those four points. And Jesus' crucifixion is so central to my uh, personal theology that Jesus died for our sins on the cross. That is so key for me. Right. Uh, that, is, that is what I think makes a person a Christian when they believe that. Right. So your frustration in your blog post was, according to those four points, surely you count as an evangelical, but then once they throw in this these theologies about a triune God, then, well, you don't have that core conviction. Biblical Unitarians like you and I don't have that, but more to the point, there are a ton of evangelicals who really don't think about the Trinity and don't have any kind of settled view about it. And the Trinity, the classical Trinity formulas, are not part of their central core convictions either. So I think you can criticize the the, uh, definition as just clearly too narrow even laying aside people like you and I. Yes, um, I like the, their definition, both Bebbington and the NAE, on the four points. I like that. But the NAE's addition there, after the four points, 
of trying God, that looks like a slip. This issue of whether or not God is a trinity of persons in the history of the church since the fourth century has been absolutely crucial. This is the main thing that divides Christians from religious Jews and Muslims. They've had many, many discussions throughout the uh, history of Christianity since the fourth century about this with these other two religions. And this is the thing that divides them the most. So this is very crucial. The Catholic Church decided at its first ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea in 325, and it produced the Nicene Creed, which states that you must believe that Jesus is very God of very God. Mm-hmm. That is language that's taken from Greek philosophers, and it means that Jesus is God just as much as God the Father is God. Right. True God from true God, same usia, same essence. So the creed says that if you don't believe this, you are anathema. And one-third of the creed, the rest of the creed, pronounces all of these anathemas on people who say so-and-so-and-so-and-so, which has to do with statements mostly made by Arius, which is why the, the council was called in the first place. And those are statements in which Arius actually believed that Jesus was God, but he did not believe that Jesus was God in the same sense that the Father was God. Right, yeah, and divine I call in a lesser this, way. I call this big God, little God. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Arius believed in the big God, the Father, but Jesus was a little God. Now, that is the view that the apologists held. Those were the teachers of Christianity in the second, third century. They all believed that uh, in big God, little God. So I don't believe that Arius departed from their teaching. But at any rate, this is when it was determined concerning Jesus, but the doctrine of the Trinity was not determined until in the... 370s and made official at the next council in 381. So the church ever since has said that if you do not believe Jesus is God and you do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, then you are not a Christian. So for the National Association of Evangelicals to state what, define what an evangelical is with its four points, and then right after that, to make a statement in which it includes in it that evangelicals believe in a triune God, that is strange. It just looks like they haven't thought the thing through. They obviously put it in there because they think it's so important for evangelicals. But if it was, if it's important, if it's so important, if it's essential to believe that in order to be an evangelical, then they should have put it in their four points. In other words, they should have made a fifth point. Mm -hmm. That's what my point is. Mm -hmm. And this point about anathemas is a very interesting one. So we could talk about the so-called Athanasian Creed, but let's leave that aside and stick with the official statement from the Council of Nicaea in 325. So after giving its then very new and controversial definitions, it says, and those who say there once when he was not, in other words, 
there was a time when Jesus didn't exist, and before he was begotten, he was not, and that he came to be from things that were not, or from another hypostasis or substance, affirming that the Son of God is subject to change or alteration, these the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes. In other words, curses them, puts them outside the realm of salvation. Salvation's through the church, and you're out, buddy, if you think that you can believe in Jesus and think that there was a time when he didn't exist. Okay, but back to evangelicals. Generally, evangelicals do not think that. And even the evangelical apologists who just insist on the Trinity and it's the most important thing in the world and all the rest of your theology is going to be wrong if you don't get this correct. If you then ask them, yeah, but so do you go to hell if you don't believe in the Trinity? They're, oh, no. <laughs> of course not. I mean, how could, how could you say that? A person might be confused or might have not studied the history of theology. I mean, what you have to believe is that Jesus died for your sins and was risen on the third day and that he offers salvation through his sacrifice even now, right? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. In a sense, evangelicals don't preach the Trinity. They don't follow Catholic tradition in damning people who don't go along with that theology. And so, yeah, it's kind of weird to sneak it in, <laughs> as the NAE does on their webpage here. Well, in the evangelical churches that I have attended regularly in my life, and there's basically been three, they were all Bible churches. So I've been in the so-called Bible church movement all of my adult life and before. They all taught very strongly the doctrine of the Trinity. And they taught that if you do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, you're not a Christian. Now, I agree with you, Dale, that there are a lot of uh, evangelicals that are not that strong about it. And, you know, if you, if you get the average evangelical to discuss the doctrine of the Trinity, my experience is they don't know it very well. They're going to make a lot of gaffes. In other words, they're going to say things wrong mm -hmm. about the doctrine of the Trinity, showing that they don't know it very well. Right. Three parts uh, and of God. so, yeah, you just, you just get in trouble talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. And the Catholic Church recognized this early, and they said, don't have anything to do with that. Just let us teach you and you believe what we say. But, of course, enlightenment started to change that. Yeah, and evangelicals think that they can interpret the Bible even apart from the teaching magisterium of the Catholic Church. There you go. That's a very important issue in evangelicalism that distinguishes itself from a lot of traditional Christianity. When the Trinity's podcast comes back, the latest in evangelical definition technology. Mr. Zarley, one of the things that occasioned your blog posts was a story and a press release 
relating to some research done by the National Association of Evangelicals and an outfit called Lifeway Research. And they were trying to do a statistically valid study and find out how many evangelicals are in the American population. And what they did was they slightly revised Bebbington's four statements. And they said, well, you're an evangelical if you strongly agree to the following four things. So here's their revised four points. The first is, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. The second, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. The third is, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And the fourth is, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So, how are these different from the first four? Some people, like Dr. Scott McKnight on his blog, said, well, they seem pretty much the same. Well, as a picky definition-minded philosopher, I see a little difference here. The part about the death on the cross, it sounds like it's saying that nobody, whatever, could ever be forgiven unless that death had occurred. Um, so it's not just that it's important or central or that that's how you get the new covenant. It's that nobody ever could be forgiven. That's what it makes it sound like. Only that sacrifice could remove the penalty of sin. Whereas before, it just says, uh, makes possible the redemption of humanity. That's a little different. And then the fourth point, only those who trust in Jesus as their Savior receive salvation. That makes it sound like it's guaranteed that a person goes to hell unless they are a believing Christian. So it seems to me they're tightening up the old definition a little bit. They're trying to make it require stricter theology in a way. Is that how it struck you when you read the new four points? Yeah. You know, if I was going to make any criticism of the four points that the NAE has there, there are two things that come to my mind. It seems to rule out people who lived before Jesus' crucifixion. I bring this subject up in my book regarding Jimmy Dunn's book, Baptism of the Holy Spirit, in which he says a, a person is not born again until they have become a Christian. Whereas the born again terminology is in John 3, where Jesus said to Nicodemus, a teacher, of the Sanhedrin, that you must be born again. And I think that Jesus is making reference to passages in what we call the Old Testament concerning the new covenant, that you need to have a new heart. So that this idea that a man is in God's family because he's been circumcised, well, that's not really what the law of Moses intended. This idea of having a right heart before God and therefore having a circumcised heart, as a couple of the prophets say, this is the new covenant, this is the born-again experience, and it was going on in people's hearts in Old Testament days. It's just that Jesus uses a new terminology for it, born again. So I think that the NAE statement there is a little too restrictive in that it doesn't include people in Old Testament days. 
So you're thinking about, in the first instance, people like Abraham, that he trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and yet he was not a believing Christian in any sense because he had not accepted Christ as his Savior and made that his atonement. You also mentioned in your blog post, what about people who never do get exposed to the gospel and never have any chance to hear it? Okay, well, some people would take a hard line that, well, they just go to hell. You know, if you're an Augustinian about this kind of thing, they have original sin, they deserve to go to hell, and that's just all there is to it. Only the gospel can remove the stain of that original sin. But other people, and people who are evangelicals, arguably, they think, well, people who never heard the gospel, you know, they lived in, I don't know, New Guinea 2,000 years ago, never had any exposure to Christian missionaries or anything. You might still think, based on Romans 1, that they had some knowledge of God, God's eternality and God's holiness, and that they had some sense of what God required of them, and... I mean, why couldn't they respond in a way that God would accept? They, they get a, an easier deal, in a sense, because they had a lot less information than people like us do, and also the people who rejected Jesus or who have rejected the gospel. But if you think that God might save a person like that, who never is exposed to the gospel, then it wouldn't be true that, as the NAE says here, only those who trust in Jesus alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. These other people wouldn't have the new covenant, and they wouldn't have the Holy Spirit and the uh, relationship with God that comes by the new covenant, but are we really sure that God would send them to hell, given that they never had a chance to do anything to get out of that? Yeah, you know, I've been taught that you must believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior in order to be born again and therefore become a member of the church, a genuine Christian, be in the kingdom of God, have eternal life. But concerning those who have never heard, meaning they've never heard about Jesus, never heard the good news about Jesus, dying for our sins on the cross, rising from the dead and ascending to heaven, and he's coming again in the future to establish his kingdom. I'm not fully satisfied with what my answer to that might be. And so I'm, uh, I'm open to what other people have to say about it. But concerning the word alone in that NAE statement there, believe in Christ alone for salvation. When you use that word alone, that especially if you're attuned to Christian history, that brings up Martin Luther because Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation. He was a Catholic and he saw in the book of Galatians and then the book of Romans, this truth of justification by faith. And so this justification before God, this becoming a Christian, it's not by baptismal regeneration as the Catholic church taught, It's what happens in the inner man. It's belief, as you said about Abraham. He believed God, and yet he wasn't circumcised. That happened later to him. So it's this belief in Jesus, believing that Jesus died for our sins, God justifies us and forgives us of our sins 
and gives us eternal life. So that is the truth that Martin Luther saw in those two books in the Bible. And it brought about the Protestant Reformation, which was a tremendous movement of God. But Martin Luther added something to that. In his previous church, the Catholic Church, they taught that salvation is believing in Jesus plus tradition. They taught works. And Martin Luther was very opposed to that. He says, no, it's only faith. So Martin Luther wrote this in his translation, of the German translation of the Bible in Romans 3. But the word alone is not in the Greek text. And so it brings up this idea, well, is it only faith or is it like James says in his epistle in the New Testament? Show me a man who has faith without works and I'll show you a man who has faith with his works. What James is saying is, I think, salvation produces works or else it's not really salvation. And that's why I use the word genuine. Sometimes when I refer to a Christian, I will say a genuine Christian. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, you can be a Christian in name only and you're not genuine. And what do I mean by being genuine? I mean, that it is not only believing in Jesus as your savior, dying for you on the cross. I said that I was saved. I became a real Christian when I prayed with my Sunday school teacher, receiving Jesus into my life, believing that he died for my sins on the cross, but also believing in Jesus as my Lord. And so Paul teaches so clearly, and so does Jesus, that we must accept Jesus as Lord. In other words, believe in his teachings, follow him. Now, all of us aren't going to do that perfectly, of course. We still have a nature to sin, I believe. But it's this life of Jesus that's now in us when we're converted to him mm -hmm. that makes a difference in our life, makes a difference regarding righteousness. And so if we don't have evidence of salvation in our life, and we say we're Christians, we're not really Christians, and we don't understand about Jesus being Lord of our life. And this new life is something that we recognize in ourselves, and we also recognize it in other people. And sometimes those are people who would not call themselves evangelicals. In our more sober moments, we, oh no, we're, we're not saying only evangelicals are Christians or only evangelicals are saved. And, but still, I mean, isn't this important? And I have to admit, I'm conflicted about this whole defining the term evangelical. On the one hand, these are my people. Yeah, I went to Biola. I, I grew up in evangelical churches and I love a lot of things about them. I have my problems with them too, but we won't get into that. They have many wonderful qualities, some of which are brought out in these four-point definitions. On the other hand, I always remember the interesting passage in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul scolds the Corinthians for some of them saying, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. When I think about myself, I think I want to define myself as a follower of Jesus or as a Christian, not so much as an evangelical, like I need to stick that in people's face, you know, and maybe you're not. Well, I am, let me tell you. You know what I mean? There's a little bit of party 
or sectarian flavor to being very interested in who's a real evangelical and, you know, define yourself as an evangelical, I think. And so I'm, I'm a little bit wary of that and putting too much emphasis on this whole conversation of who's a real evangelical. Yeah, I really subscribe to what you're saying right there, Dale. I feel the same way. I call myself an evangelical, even though most evangelicals who I've known who are taught and understand something about Christianity, they don't accept me as an evangelical. Uh, and that's because I don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity or therefore that Jesus is God. But it's not important to me to call myself an evangelical. It, it, you know, if they want to say, no, you're not an evangelical, okay. But I believe I am. I do feel more comfortable being identified with a group of Christians. I feel a part of evangelicalism. I was an evangelical before I ever became a Trinitarian Christian. And then I was a Trinitarian Christian for 22 years. And I was an evangelical. And so I have believed in the main tenets of evangelicalism all of my adult Christian life until I changed to being a non-Trinitarian. But I don't think that my becoming a non-Trinitarian, therefore no longer believing in the doctrine of Trinity, changed me with regard to being an evangelical. I've continued to go to, to evangelical churches. You know, if they want to say, look, you have to be a Trinitarian to be an evangelical, all right. But that's why I wrote the blog, was to create some discussion about this. And what discussion was I trying to create? I was trying to create this discussion that the NAE defines what an evangelical is, and it does not include that you have to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, but yet in the very next statement, after they've ended their definition of an evangelical, they throw in this, oh, by the way, evangelicals believe in the triune God. And so I want to try to produce some discussion about that subject. Mr. Zarley, thanks for talking with us. Hey, yeah, it's great. Don't miss next week when I talk to Mr. Zarley about his interesting recent book, Solving the Samaritan Riddle. This book concerns the baptism of the Holy Spirit and how to properly understand the Gospel of Matthew and the book of Acts. You won't want to miss that episode. Today's thinking music has been Doria by Robert Anthony Russo. There's a link to that track and to his other uploaded works in the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinities podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step -step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org slash blog slash review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. 
And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. For listening, we'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>